Hello, it's Toby Hedricks. Who's round? I'm releasing the interview I did most recently because I've interviewed somebody from the latest series of Doctor Who. myself once again in the Club for Actors and Actors or the Concert Artists Association, Deleters Appropriate, talking to somebody who's only just been in Doctor Who, so I'm going to ask him to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Hello, I'm Richard Ashton, and yes, uh, I was last in episode eight, I think, uh, The Empress of Mars, uh, and I played Friday, the Ice Warrior. Yeah, the Man Friday Ice Warrior. The Man Friday Ice Warrior, indeed. Get the Robinson Crusoe reference. Yeah. So, how familiar were you with Ice Warriors before you were called upon to be one? Ah, uh, pretty well. Although, for most of us, we don't get to see Ice Warriors very often. But they made a massive impression on me when I was a child in 1970 something. Um, and then I was delighted to find out later. Uh, that one of the first piece people to give the Ice Warriors their particular voice uh, was Bernard Breslau, mm. who is another actor of, or was, bless him, another actor of six foot six. Um, and so I was interested in that and, and had a back, look back through, because I think the first incarnation of the Ice Warriors I'm too young for. Um, yes, but that I was, was aware. 60, 1967. Was That's it? right, so I was two. So I, I, can't, I cannot claim to have seen them then. But it's one of those things that you, you, they made a huge impression on me. I was surprised to find out how few. Um, episodes they'd been in, mm. in fact, how few, how few stories they'd had. Because in my mind, they were as big as the Sea Devils, they were as, probably as big as the Cybermen, actually, for me. Um, because it's those things that really catch your imagination, uh, or indeed your sense of terror, yeah. when you're a child. And um, for some reason, the Ice Warriors used to freak me out. So, then when you were called upon to to do this. So what, 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 what process would that have been? Did you, did you know uh, the director? Were you called into audition? No, not at all. I was called into audition, completely as one might say. Um, possibly an audition by tape measure. I mentioned that the Ice Warriors... <laughs> well, I'd, I always wanted to be a Cyberman, but these days I'm far too big to be a Cyberman, apparently. Be a cyber leader, perhaps. But um, six foot six is about bang on for, for an Ice Warrior. Um, so no, I, just, I went down and auditioned and, and met Wayne and um, the producers and thought, well, wow, this would be a really great thing to do, because even the first draft of the script, it was quite clear there's something pivotable about this ice warrior and, and whether or not he's a foe or a friend. Um, what I didn't realise was, of course, that chronologically speaking, this would be the first time the ice warriors appeared, even yeah. though it's not the first time we've seen them. Um, and so I was very excited to do that. And I haven't done any, well, skin or suit work for some time, uh, just because I haven't, not for any reason. So, but I thought if I'm going to do anything, it has to be. I mean, if it's good enough for Bernard Breslau, it's definitely good enough for me. Well, I think, and, and unlike the Cybermen, there's no performance, really, with, with the Cybermen in the way that there is the, the Ice Warrior, you know. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, uh, Wayne was at great pains to point out to me how little of my face would be seen. Uh, I... I well, actually quite fondly call it bucket-on-head acting, uh, because it is. But of course it means that you, you have to inhabit everything. I started out life as a puppeteer before I ever got to do anything else. And it is that business of making something genuinely live and never die. And Gary, who sculpted the Ice Warrior, was at great pains to, to explain to me how he felt it worked, how it, how it should be constantly kept animated. Um, and I think in the final footage we did get to get a, a lovely sigh and a shrug. Uh, which to achieve in, in such a big thing was, was yeah, it was quite a lot of control. Um, 
it was calling it a technical challenge is wrong it's all an acting challenge as it would be if it was a puppet as it would be if it was a voice performance um, and yeah there's a limited number of lines and there's a certain voice we have to put on it and some lovely teeth that we have to wear yeah. um, you know it's a bit like the king's speech speaking through marbles uh, but nonetheless you've still got to uh, produce the dynamic that's necessary and Peter Capaldi was extremely uh, helpful and complimentary at the level of performance that everyone was giving both myself and Adele inside the suit uh, because it needs that otherwise it's somebody in a box and we don't want that we, we want a living breathing monster well it's interesting because it's telling because when they came back for the first time in the new series it was a, a, a tall act but his voice was dubbed by somebody else was Nick it Briggs did the voice so that was more like a cyberman thing where you have oh, an actor on. and and a, and a dubbed performance but you uh, well i know spencer quite well yeah uh, spencer and i are often in the same casting rooms together because we are exactly the same height although every other bodily dimension seems to be different um so i i, I think the original incarnation as you say was based on him i didn't realize it wasn't his voice because of course he's gone on to be darth vader yeah which is rather lovely uh, rather marvelous um but no i mean I, so had you been up for it for the previous no one? not at all no. no i was doing something completely different at that point because uh, that was quite a few years ago wasn't it it was yeah it's very three three it was odd. matt smith time yeah so it's it I like to think in my head it was only about 18 months ago, but it was about three or four years ago, because we're ageing quicker than we like to let off. I think I was, in, I was in Bucharest doing a Dracula movie at that point, else I'm sure the call might have come up, um, so, so it often does, you know, that kind of thing. And, because um, of course the voice is different now, it's much, Bernard Breslau's was much more sibilant and hissy. Yes, and I, I think that they wanted something of that, and I did a little bit of research into it, but when we got to it, she said, well, no, you, you know, this, this is the first time we've seen you. This is a different character. Um, find a voice that works in the dynamic that, that you want. So it could be this subservient character. He could also be uh, show his fealty to the Empress and also be commanding when he wanted to. And then there's this interesting part where he becomes conciliatory and, and actually starts to encourage the Doctor to, to, to work with them, um, which I'm sure was his idea all along. So it needed to be something that was flexible. And, you know. Well, I think also um, the reason they're sibilant is when they're on our planet because they're not used to our atmosphere. And you are on Mars. So, ah, so there I you think go. you're all right there. So the, de the relative density of the atmosphere was right. Yes, we never quite got to, to grips with how much oxygen there was below the surface of Mars, <laughs> um, if I'm really honest. <laughs> I, I know how much there was inside the suit, but um, not, not so much on Mars. Yeah. Um, that's a really good point, actually. You know, I never thought of that. And you've got, um, I guess, much easier to act with the hands that you have. Yeah, well, that's the... really, really interesting because we had a bit of um, manipulation to do uh, with the washing up scene. So it's quite a, a gag, isn't it? You, know, you see Friday washing up. You never see an ice warrior doing the dishes. Yeah. Um, and in actual fact, the instruction for me from Gary, who, who made the suit, was although the, the hands are now much more flexible than they ever were, to maintain the impression of this very strong wrong claw um, that was, well, biomechanical, you know, it, it, that idea. And so that, that was very much a sort of exercise of don't relax the hands, you know, keep them all, almost in a, in, a, in a Vulcan salute. So you've got to three digits, as it were, or a thumb and two digits. Um, but also to, to catch things in a, in, in a very firm way, because the minute you relax the hand, 
then it suggests that there's a human hand inside it, and that's that's not what we want at all. Uh, I love. I actually love that washing up scene because I love the way because it was so unexpected. Because because we're conditioned to sort of see monsters and aliens as monsters and aliens, and getting character into them, I think, is very difficult. Mm. I love the bit where you sort of elbow Ferdinand Kingsley as if you go, I don't like you. And that was really nice. That was a really nice moment. I think that was entirely sold by Ferdinand. I think, I think, I think it was um, genius. That shows, that shows you a, a, an actor absolutely um, you know, working, uh, working very well and very quickly. Because we went back and talked about it. And I said, is that all right? And he said, no, it's absolutely fantastic. Because it, 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 it keeps him involved in the scene. It also lets you know his status and what's going on. And there's a very strong sense in the way it's written that Friday does not like this man. And as a bellwether, you think, well, hang on, if, if you're a goodie or if you're a baddie, you don't like this guy. Actually, now we discover that you are of a, of a benevolent um, intent. My gosh, you're right. You've spotted this villain before we did. And that, that's quite nice because it, it, it allows everyone to have a reality. Yeah. Yeah, it's good, and um, and uh, because yes, because if you watch Doctor Who as a as a kid and the Peladon stories, of course, it ties. And we have that beautiful thing of Isan Churchman providing the voice of Alpha Centauri. Now, perhaps that was just a thrill to me, and, <laughs> and I have to say, a lot of the other people on the show are not old enough to remember it. But those of us that did watch those, and I was at school, I was at high school when they came out. Um, I was thrilled when I read it in the script. Because it's, it's one of those, those voices, those performances that you remember forever. Um, I actually think when I was at high school in North Harrow, we had an American supply teacher who disappeared for a few days. And when he came back to school, he told us that he'd been doing Doctor Who, which we didn't believe. And I, I've yet to investigate the episode, but I'm pretty sure he was one of the other delegates. But I, I haven't done the research. I just remember the story of him saying this is what he did. And he, and he was an actor and a writer. And so for me to end up in something that referenced that episode is a bit spooky. Now, when I mentioned it to Peter Capaldi, he knew exactly what I was talking about. But I, um, I confess I haven't done the research since then to find out exactly what the chap's name was. Wow. Wow. How funny. Because, uh, yes, because, of course, Peter, Peter Capaldi is himself a... Uh, oh, he's hugely knowledgeable. Hugely knowledgeable. He's, he's a great fan. Yeah. Uh, and very, sort of, um, supportive of... of the whole ethos and his place within it. That was lovely. You really felt that there was quite a lot of respect for what we were doing. You know, sometimes actors can be a little bit glib. Absolutely not. Very, very conscious of, of I don't even call it heritage, of just the special magic which you've given this flame to carry and you carry it forward and that's exactly what he's done. And he's very welcoming to us and very... Uh, and well, what's the schedule like? Because Doctor Who's always famously never had enough time and never had enough money. Um, because of the prosthetic, and because, well, I had a prosthetic on underneath the bucket, which, which really was beautifully rendered and extremely complicated. Uh, I was doing 15-hour days. Um, I think I was there for five and a bit weeks. Um, they're very efficient. Wayne particularly organised the shoot very, very efficiently, you know. The promise is you won't be in the suit for longer than a certain amount of time, and you know that won't happen. You, you know you're going to be in it all day, you know, sort of ten hours at least, actually, in the suit. Um, but, you know, use as efficiently as you can. And when you look at the coverage they shot and what we got done, I think they do really well. Um, I mean, it, you know, it is like a movie. And to say then we shot it in, in I don't know, how, how many days now? Something like uh, 
18 or 19 days was my involvement, so perhaps some people were in it for 22 or 23. Um, yes, you can always use more time. Yeah. You can always use more time. Uh, whether you use it well or not is another question. Now, back in the day, uh, after Bernard Breslau stopped doing it, the Ice Warriors were largely played by the same people when they came back. So, so if if they returned, would, oh, well, I assume that, you would do it. I would be thrilled. I would be absolutely thrilled. You know, perhaps they could have mended Friday's eye, for instance, <laughs> and um, you know, uh, uh, found him a new purpose in the new Martian Empire. Um, and perhaps to have a little bit, find out a little bit more about about how he how he goes on and, and whether he gets rewarded for his uh, his loyalty. And find out what he's really called, I guess. Oh. Well, and do you know what it was in the original script? Was it? And then it was excised, and uh, so I I'm not you know I can't say I can't <laughs> I can't I can't say actually what his uh, ice warrior name is, but it was there and it was taken. Um, that'd be fascinating, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because then the storyline could almost catch up with itself. Well, indeed. You know, uh, but we never, we never saw the Empress before, so perhaps she has another path to take. Yeah. And perhaps, hopefully, Friday goes with her. Oh, so we might not have seen the last, uh, last Friday. I hope not. Uh, well, look, let's talk about other things, because Doctor Who is uh, uh, but one part of your career. So, um, uh, what, what was it that led you to become an actor? And what, what was your um, background? You know, I was asked that at the children's writing group I'm working with at the moment, and, and the most honest thing I can ever say is that at school it was the hardest thing there was. It was the one thing that I didn't understand. I didn't understand how you did that. I don't come from a theatrical family, I don't come from a performing world, and I, there was these people telling me to do these things, these mental exercises that seemed impossible, and that was just a huge challenge. And I, I followed that as, as, a, as a training, as a source of study, without any knowledge that you could actually become an actor. It wasn't until I got to university and I realised, oh, hang on a minute, you, you can actually do this. This is an actual job. I don't think I'd given it... I didn't go to the theatre as a kid, hardly ever. I went to the movies occasionally, watch TV. It never occurred to me that those people were at work. And then that was utterly thrilling. That's actually a job. Oh, yeah, OK, I, can, I, I would like to try and do that as a job. And, and, you know, and that's where we still are. Yeah. And so how did you go about it? How did you...? Um, did everything ever, anybody ever asked me to do at school? Did all the plays, uh, even work with other years doing their plays? Uh, did a drama A-level? which is quite intensive, with some uh, very good teachers who themselves could easily have gone on to be professional actors but chose to have families and lives and careers and houses and mortgages instead. Uh, <laughs> and then I went to university, uh, where I still studied drama, it wasn't, wasn't a drama school, but they were quite far-sighted, it was UEA in Norwich, and they had a lot of uh, visiting lecturers who were working professionals, and I think that's what made the difference. And Norwich as a, as a town has always had a great performing tradition. It's very strong on dance, very strong on puppetry. Um, and in the intervening uh, 30 years since I went to university, has gone on from strength to strength. Um, and I even, I even worked as a stagehand at the Theatre Royal. I've had the great pleasure to work with many actors who I recognised because I was their stagehand when they toured through Norwich in the mid-1980s. Uh, I worked very closely with some of them, which is quite good fun. Um, and so it really, and I, I owe half of it to Norwich, really, because it, it, it gave me, again, a job in the theatre. 
and a job to find out how actors were and how and what, what the other jobs were. I mean, there are many jobs in, in, in film and television which aren't necessarily obvious when you watch the, watch the shows. And that was it. That was it. I was done. I was in. Um, my uh, graduation date university was the opening night of a 36 or 37 date tour of The Tempest, in which rather improbably at 22 I played Prospero. Wow. Um, it's all downhill from there. But uh, <laughs> that was the particular idea that the director had, who's still working in London today, John Meth, um, doing great stuff. And uh, it's a world of possibilities that I was very, very lucky opened up. Um, and after running my own company with uh, some friends in Norwich for a few years, came to London and, and as you do in this business, started all again, started over again. You know, it happens all the time. Um, I've been regular in TV series and all those kind of things, and then that comes to an end. My casting changes, and you start again. You know, it, it must be nearly 20 years since I did a suit job, for instance, a skin job. Um, had to, to be a nice warrior because you just have to be. Someone says, "Will you yes, please?" But before that, you know, I was in the Fifth Element. I was a Mondo Chouan. That was a, a job I was very grateful to have. Very interesting people. Massive creature effects department. And, and Gary, who sculpted the Ice Warrior, also worked on that. I think he also worked on a. Um, Jerry Anderson series I did. Uh, Space Precinct. Space Precinct, indeed. Alien Ambassador. Wow, you've got a good memory. Um, and that was I'm oddly fascinated with Space Precinct. It was an oddly fascinating thing to be in. And I actually had a chance to be that sort of monster man because they wanted someone who could do the prosthetic and do quite a lot of the stunts and things. But I was very uh, lucky I got, I got to go and do something else instead. Um, and it's one of those odd times when there are choices to be made and I, I chose to go and do something else. And often rather regretted I didn't stick it out and saw Space Precinct, you know, to the, to the end of that series because there was a lot to do. Yeah. Um, well, they, yeah, they had a sort of rep, didn't they, yeah. three or four guys that played different parts every week. That's right, yeah. I mean, it, it was the early days of very controlled uh, animatronics, so people were wearing animatronic headsets, which I think some people had trouble with. Um, I was lucky, I just had a facial prosthetic and, a, and a, an accent. Um, it, was, it was easy. Uh, well, a lot of actors in that found, talking about, found having been employed to um, speak found after the first couple of episodes they're all called in and told we're actually going to be dubbing you all yeah so that yeah. would be that must that would I, be a dilemma wouldn't it i think that is a dilemma and i, th I think because of the most famous incident yeah. of course with dave prowse and darth vader um and I, I don't know what the truth of that story is but the truth is he was darth vader and yet james or james the voice it's a question you do uh, as an actor you do ask and, and so if you know going in that's a choice you can make I was once asked to stand in for another actor in a suit because he couldn't do the first three weeks of shooting. And it was explained to me that he would then come back, revoice the bits I'd done, and he'd carry on and do the suit work. And uh, he's a well-known actor of about my height, <laughs> not too many of us. And um, in the end, he put his foot down and said, no, I'm not letting that bloke inside my suit. Um, oh, you're, really? You'll jolly well wait for me, and I'll shoot the whole thing. And good for him, because, because you know... Uh, these things don't come along all the time. No. Um, but I was, I was certainly willing to do it. I mean, I was starting out, I, I would have very happily done that just to get on a set and find out how it worked. But I did, I did ask Wayne, actually, on, on Doctor Who, and he said, no, no, it's your voice. Your voice, your performance. We, we, you know, this either works as a, as a piece of drama or it doesn't. You know, we've got far too many other things to worry about to then start trying to adjust performances. 
um, you know, my experience in, in ADR is that if you do try and redirect something in ADR, it's a disaster. The performance has to be there in the first place. You, you can't change a character around, you can't make it do something else. Because it, 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 I mean, we all remember those shows, lovely, wonderful Eastern European shows from Czechoslovakia, like the singing, ringing tree, mm. the Spanish blade, uh, the flashing blade, that's right, and white horses and all those things. And there's a charm to them. But if we're really honest, what we're looking at and, and, the, and the audio performances we're listening to are two totally different things. They exist on different planes and different worlds. That's one of the great charms of them. Um, but, but to then try and do, to redirect something in ADR, I think, is, is uh, it's a waste of everyone's time. Um, so we, we, we rehearsed, we performed, uh, and there was very little ADR that needed to be done, actually, because how they managed to catch, capture the voice with the, the noise of the suits, particularly, but they did. Oh, is it very creaky? Yeah, yeah, it's a very specific material, uh, which was asked for because it, 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 it gives that immensely solid traditional feel. Um, but it's very heavy and quite rigid. And so where it touches, it, it, it doesn't just rub, it kind of bangs and clicks. Um, so how on earth the sound recordist managed to re re retrieve as much as he did, I don't know. Um, but we did, we did, we, we did, we bunged in a few extra lines actually in ADR, uh, which was nice for storyline and one or two things, but that's not on my face. Um, so what you're looking at is synchronous sound, which is great. Wow, wow. Yeah. and unusual, as you so well, so tell me about the fifth element then. Was that? I mean, that well, that was tremendous. That was that was that was crazy. I I hadn't long been in London. I'd, I'd been doing uh, shows for the Norwich Puppet Theatre, and I'd been touring with my own company, and really just sort of starting out again in London with a, a co-op agency down in Tooting. And this call came to go and, and just do a movement workshop. Really, and I had no idea what they were even talking about. And it turned out they wanted people to animate the Mondashawan characters at the beginning of the film. Uh, and in that, it was compl a complete exoskeleton, carried on a, an aluminium frame, which was built and made to a fiberglass positive of me, so I had a full body cast, and all six Mondos were built to fit me, because I was thought to be a, A, the tallest, and B, a median body type. I wasn't as skinny as some of the guys, and certainly wasn't as well built as some of the guys. Uh, so I went and had a full body cast. They, they built all these frames, uh, which have become almost an industry standard. People will, will recognise them. The, the, the dancing dresses on Billy Elliot that did last year were made on a very similar armature. Um, yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, it was made on a very similar armature, um, whereby you carry the weight uh, through your waist and through your shoulders. But the Mondos were incredible because um, they were actually designed by, well, un unusually, by Luc Besson, I think, whereas uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier did uh, all the, all the, the costumes. Yeah. But he, he had this very, very clear image of what he wanted for the Mondos and also how they should move. So we're in a thing the size of two telephone boxes with obviously no vision. We have a little LCD screen in front of our faces, but the camera that feeds it is mounted above and beyond one of our shoulders quite an interesting exercise in dislocation. And then the whole suit was pinioned at the knees with a, with a, 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 a bar with some pivots at either end because he wanted this idea of immense weight. And I, I will remember forever being inside the suit several hours, all these wearing motors and flashing lights and this funny little LCD screen and him charging up and down screaming, no, no, not like that. Come on, elephant! Come on, elephant! And I thought, ah! He doesn't realise 
that although elephants' legs move in a, in a very sort of slow and ponderous fashion, if you look at an elephant's back, you know, in a howdah on it, it will swings from side to side. And there's a famous, I think it's a famous scene when the Mondos all first approach the pyramid. We're all there, all of us on this real bridge about 12 feet in the air at Pinewood. And all of the Mondos are indeed passing each other, waving like the backs of elephants. Um, which was not what he thought the movement would be. But in the end, I think it was fantastic. I think it was fantastic, because it gave you this a sense of immense age and weight uh, and inevitability, inexorable. That's, that's, they are, their, their progress is inexorable with the Mondos. Uh, and that was a tremendous time. Uh, I think I was on that for seven or eight weeks before we even filmed anything so we were training and working with Nick Dudman's uh, Creature Workshop people uh, that was fab because actually I had connections with Nick through, through other things which was good fun um, a lot of hard work but the quality uh, the, the detail was fantastic on that show uh, and in fact whilst I was doing it uh, I, I took a few unscheduled absences from Pinewood uh, and went to an audition uh, which is how I got to go to Lithuania and do Robin Hood. Ah, well, yes, we were going to come to that. I, I always worried if, um, if Doctor Who ever came back and was made by Americans, because I was, again, oddly fascinated by the new adventures of Robin Hood. Oh, yeah. They called it the new adventures Robin Hood. Ah, Robin and, Hood. I, and I thought they'd call it Doctor Who. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, they put that odd stress on the beginning. Well, it is. And, and also, it's, it's uh, Little John. Yeah. Little John, not Little John. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> Do you know, that business of stress, I went to live in the States as a result of doing the New Adventures of Robin Hood. And that accent is, is not the difficulty there. It's not the difficulty at all because obviously it's a massive uh, meeting of, of voices from all over the world. But where you put the stress in a sentence, and when you come back from having lived there, people think you've become very rude and very brusque because you, you, you place the stress in the sentence, you place the noun of the thing you want so prominently. And it becomes, you know, no, excuse me, uh, very nice to you. May I have a loaf of bread? Can I get a loaf of bread? Yeah. Bum, 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 bum. And if you don't do that, people just go, what, 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 what do you say? What do you say? You think they're making fun of you at first. No, they genuinely can't understand because in the sound picture, they're used to listening, they're used to hearing things in a different place. And we, we were supposed to be Americans in the New Adventures of Robin Hood. All Americans thought we were... Australians or Canadians or something. Um, it was transatlantic. It was it was transatlantic, and the, and the one genuine or two genuine Americans we had as regulars were very very generous at our uh, at our. We, we had a originally we had an Australian-made Marion, an American Robin Hood, a Welsh Friar Tuck. And me as an Eng I was the only Englishman there. In fact, I was the only Englishman of the regulars. Uh, so why did, why did they cast an Englishman? What, I mean, apart from the fact, obviously, that you're a good actor, but why did they come looking? I think it, it, there's a number of reasons. I mean, Fred Weintraub, the, the, one of the producers only died last month, Joel Fred, he's a bit of a legend in the business. Um, I asked him that question, and he, he just said, ah, it's because you were cheap. <laughs> because Fred, Fred would never um, let go an opportunity to, uh, 
to have that sort of joke with you. He, he was genuinely a legend in his, in, his own, uh, in his own world that he created. Um, and he's one of those characters of which you have numerous stories, most of which I can't tell you now because they involved him abusing us uh, in some way, which I just thought was tremendously funny. I think it's coming from Manchester. Um, and the more I laughed and the more he swore at me, the better, better on we got, really. Um, I think the true thing, and m many actors will recognise this scenario, is you're shooting in Eastern Europe for uh, economy reasons. Uh, they want well-trained, uh, professional, hard-working actors who will turn up and, and undergo quite a lot of duress so you come to England, or rather Britain, because in the UK we do train tougher, harder actors. It's just true. Uh, and then you get a couple of names in from America because there's always their fear is that no one in America will watch it if there isn't a face they recognise. Well, I think that, that tide's starting to turn because we're sending so many actors there um, that in the end, having, having your, it's only the studios who feel the insecurity of wanting an American face. I think the audience are quite happy to see British actors as leads in their shows. Well, we know that. Yeah. You know, I, if, I, if I go over there for Super Bowl, which I sometimes do, usually the rest of the room gives it me in the neck for just how many English actors are working as Americans in American telly. Yeah. Um, but we, we had that odd choice. It, it was Robin Hood, and yet they wanted it that the heroes were Americans, obviously. All the villains could be Brits. Well, we, you know, this, this has been going on since the sword and sandal days of the 60s, hasn't it? <laughs> All the, all the Romans are British and the, the Jews are American. Yeah, okay. Um, but that was the way it was. And really, we just got on with it. And then, surreptitiously, or not surreptitiously, myself and Martin Ellis managed to inject about as much British TV and theatre humour in as we possibly could. And, and those people who've watched the show a lot will see the two Ronnie's pastiche that we wrote. We'll see all the references to Morecambe and Wise, including doing the Bring Me Sunshine dance in an episode. <laughs> Um, of which we were unapologetic. Oh, we did quite a bit of um, Laurel and Hardy too. And uh, I don't, I've done a lot of pantomimes, so you also see panto routines in there. Because, okay, you make a speak in an American accent, that's fine. You can bring in space aliens, Vikings, Alexander the Great, time-travelling Californian teenagers. But I know how to keep this, this British. I know how to keep this exactly where it should be. And when we got the humour of it right, I think it worked very well like that. Yeah. But that was within quite a broad canvas uh, and a show which I don't think found its audience necessarily here in the UK, but did in a lot of other countries. And I'm incredibly fab in French, I discovered. <laughs> and who, and the actor who played, played Little John in French was the most wonderful, sexy, funny, uh, sort of young Depardieu kind of character. Um, and I know that they rewrote the script for that as well, which is brilliant. Uh, so it's, it's a show that kind of has has weird legs and, and yeah. pops up in weird places. It was it was on at a funny time of day, but I did I, I did what well, I think I was at university at the time. But I because and lots of British actors pop up. Oh, in, in, in I mean, can you imagine somebody of my age to suddenly have Norman Ashley, Kate O'Mara, Christopher <laughs> Lee, Jeffrey Baildon. Who's only just died? Who's just done, who, who did one of these? Did he? Yeah. Oh, gosh, Jeffrey was such a wonderful person to come out with us, and so, so tremendously full of life, and, and an exercise in. Well, yes, yes, dear. I was famous in the 1970s and 60s, and well, I did a few films before that. And well, anyway, let's get on with this bit, shall we? And that was him. He played Merlin. Christopher Lee was playing our main wizardy sort of person, and and and, and Jeffrey said, "Oh, I, I, I did a film with Christopher." Well, go and say hello to him. Oh, you won't remember me, David. 
get over there. I mean, this man was, wasn't just unassuming, he genuinely was just so interested in what was coming next and so wonderful. Um, and I, I, I said to the Americans, you know, Christopher Lee will, will give you a hard time if you give him a hard time, but you, you do anything to Jeffrey Bailden and you won't have a show because we will just go home. You, know, you, don't, you don't do that to these wonderful people. Um, we have some marvellous, marvellous people coming out. Norman Ashley, what? Because yeah, he used Norm. to be in everything. He's a everything. actor. Everything. Lovely actor. Tremendous. John Fortune. John Fortune. Who is, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh. I saw Forbes Collins as a, yeah. a baddie in one. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And, you know, Forbes and I had done panto together, so it was quite a laugh. We were sat in the forest one day, and it was raining, as you often did there, under an umbrella, and, and Forbes had the, the wonderful technique of just, just deconnecting. Uh, as you're waiting in the great game of hurry up and wait and uh, we've been talking about Panto and one or two things and he went quiet alright Forbes said, yeah what are you doing he said right now Richard I'm in a sailing regatta in the Mediterranean and I'm in the lead and that's what he used to do he used to relive sailing races that he, he was a very very keen sailor very, very keen sailor um, just brilliant I mean, you know, and he was, he was in Made Marion and a Merry Man. I mean, you know, what, 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 what is not to like? And then, of course, beautifully, our, um, we had Nicholas Clay, mm. who, oh my goodness me, our very first villain was um, John Turner, who was a TV star in his own right before I was born. Mm. Adventure Man and all these amazing things. And we were sat down talking to Nicholas Clay uh, about John having been our first villain, and, and, and it was a, it, <laughs> it was a, it was quite an episode, quite quite an episode. And Nicholas was delighted because he'd worked with John in the theatre before, and he said, "How wonderful!" And he said, "Well, let me give you something John gave me. Always know with whom you are having the pleasure. Take an interest in everyone who comes. Find out everyone's story. Yes, you're in the show, and, and you know we used to be out there for 138 days non-stop filming, and you get people come and people go." make sure you know with whom you're having the pleasure and, and Nicholas was one of those those people it was just a delight it was like having a member of the genuine aristocracy come along you know well, um, and I had no idea that he, he wasn't well or anything like that and uh, I saw his picture in the Radio Times thinking oh brilliant brilliant Nicholas has got another series or he's in a oh no no he hasn't oh Oh bugger. Yeah, because he, he was just like a bit of strength and light, you know, and he was just Excalibur. You could admire him so much. He was such a strong man. He was so good looking and so charming and so handsome and, and such a great actor. One of those people who looks like he's doing nothing. And he helps you be so much better than you are. You know, absolutely like that. You know, then we got people like Chris Villiers, you know, his Norman aristocracy. Chris came out, that was very good. Sir Nicholas Beacon. Um, Nini Young. Uh, I mean, just, I still bump into a lot of people who came out, and it, it was 20 years ago now. We, yeah, 20 years ago. Um, but for me to have all those wonderful British actors come out, and we had David Soule, that uh, uh, was unbelievable. You know, he's, he's, he was almost a Brit by then, I think, David. Um, he was great fun, got his guitar out, sang us all the songs. You know, we did a lot of singing in those years because myself and Martin Alice both played the guitar um, whenever people can't stop us. Um, so, yeah, people will tell you we had a very good time for four years. Yeah. Is it, and it was four, four years? Yeah, right? four seasons. Four seasons of Williams. Yeah. Uh, and you lost, you, you changed Robin Hood's half, was it almost exactly halfway, halfway through? Halfway through, yeah, yeah. Does that change the dynamic when you've got mm. a different leading man? Completely. Absolutely. Um, Matthew decided he wanted to have a go at some other things. 
he, he perhaps well he was Marius on Broadway he wanted to try other stuff uh, and so we got an actor called John Bradley who came, who's from a slightly sort of different tradition. Um, and I, I'm not so sure it wasn't John they wanted in the first place, in, in the visual look of it, how, how they saw the series. So I think they were quite happy, you know, when, when, when John came in. We missed Matthew horribly uh, because he was, he was sort of one of us, you know, musical theatre actor, properly trained, Juilliard, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and we were doing our kind of thing. So yeah, you do, you have, to, you have to learn how to play off another leading man and how to make him look good and how to give him support. Uh, and, and that's very different. That's a, I mean, and certainly for the, the people playing uh, Maid, Maid Marion, because we, we changed our Maid Marion after the first year. She decided she wanted to go and do something else. So Barbara came, and so Barbara then got an amazing sort of thing going with Matthew, brilliant, lovely sort of relationship on, on screen. And so when, when Matthew went, I think Barbara found that that was very hard, you know. Um, because you, you, you find yourself growing into a role, you find yourself making it work, and then it all gets swept out from underneath you. And you start again. But we went on for another two seasons, and it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun to be had. I was the only person who did every single episode. Wow. Because <laughs> Mar Martin, brilliantly, we were, we were in our flat, because we used to share flats quite often, a bit like Malcolm and Wise. And uh, we were, I was playing through Akuna Matata from this, 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 this new musical we'd never heard about. And he certainly, you know, he got the part whilst we were in season three. And so at the end of season four, he went back to do um, The Other Lion King. He was the first Pumbaa, uh, which was, was very exciting. So the fact, in the end, I sort of ended up almost alone. Wow. You know, the last original. Um, but when a show comes to an end like that, when you know it does, uh, you do find yourself just giving it away. You know, okay, we're not, not going to be doing this again. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's gone. That's gone. Um, I'm not even sure what order they screen the episodes in. Because uh, I, I actually was doing something else when it aired in the UK. So I, I oh, and my parents lived where you couldn't get Channel Five. Oh, <laughs> so so the you know the, the most high-profile high long-winged thing I ever did. My parents never saw. Oh no. Mm, no, I just saw video, but that's not quite the same thing. No. So I mean, uh, the process of getting a high-profile, you know, because getting a, getting a, a U.S. series for for a, a British actor, and a, and let's not little John is is uh, you know an iconic part. Uh, how long was the how much of a process did you have to go through to to get it? Quite a lot, and as I say, it was a bit naughty really. Um, we started shooting the fifth. I guess I can say this now. We started, we started rehearsing or, or working with the suits on the fifth element, and we'd been contracted for a certain period of time. This period of time was coming to an end, and we hadn't gone anywhere near the studio because Luke was shooting other other things. Other things were more important. Other things happened, like they do. You're in creature effects. The creature effects unit was set, kept quite separate from everybody else because they didn't want people coming in, seeing the suits, and, and ruining the magic and all that kind of stuff. So every day you'd turn up thinking, oh, are we, we going to shoot today? You know, we, we, we were ready, we were strong enough, we could move the suits, we, we started to work, work out how to use them. That, that took quite a lot of, of effort. But nothing happening. So I, I took the opportunity, I think I played truant three times, which from Pinewood is quite an achievement. If you cycle, well, I used, to, I used to leg it across the fields to the bus stop by the pub, take the bus to Uxbridge, take the tube from Uxbridge down to the West End, do the audition, come back, arrive panting in the Creature Effects workshop, and the guys would be working out, going, oh, got away with it, okay, fine. And three times, no, they didn't call for us. And then finally, they decided that they would 
they, they, they would shoot us and they would extend our contracts, which is often in the contract, you can extend it by the same period again. And I had to say to them, can you, can you release me from that? I, I think I might have another job. And I didn't know. Anyway, they did very graciously release me from it and allowed me to work pro rata. So we, we shot out the whole of the fifth element. And I think I finished shooting on a Friday. And on Monday, I, I moved to Lithuania for four years. Wow. Yeah, so it, it's one of those rare, rare times when it dovetails. I'm so grateful to them that they, they let me do that. Because, of course, they put themselves in a huge situation because if we hadn't shot out the Mondos, these were things that were very much sculpted and made you know, to an individual. Uh, but we did. We got all the Mondo footage covered, and, and that was fine. Um, and then I got to go to Lithuania. And having got to Lithuania, I got to go to America, which was another 10 years of So you, you lived in the States for 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, I was very lucky though because I, I was able to come backwards and forwards. I worked a lot at the Theatre Royal in York at that time, uh, and then always tried to do uh, a rep play in yeah. the um, in the autumn whilst I was shooting Robin Hood, you know, in the summer. Uh, and then I, and then I just stayed in LA really for for most of that time. I still come back and do do jobs here, uh, but it's what you have to do. You start again. Mm. You know, your regular character in a in an international TV show. That's very nice. And the first round of auditions, people will see you just to say hello. But I think it was Jack Nich Nicholson said, you know, you've you got to remember, you go right back to the bottom of the list. They've seen you. They've seen so much of you. And unless you're a real star, you go back to the bottom and start work your way back up again, which is what I did. And I had some, some tremendous fun. Um, won a few awards in the theatre, which was lovely. Got, had to go to Long Beach in California to work with Ray Cooney. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't, couldn't get to see Ray here, uh, just don't have the profile for that sort of commercial comedy theatre. Um, and I, I did the, the sequel to Run For Your Wife, which is called Caught In The Net, with Ray in it, directed by Ray. And that was just a masterclass in farce. Wow. And what a gent, what a top man. Uh, whatever you feel about the... Because that, that kind of comedy is probably seen as quite old-fashioned now. But my goodness me, what a technician and somebody who understands a gag. And interestingly, he would say, we're now going to do the radio play. And the radio play, play means we sit still and we look at each other and we do the play. Not a speed run, we do the play. And if you can make it work like this, then you understand it and you hear the rhythm of the gags. And, you know, Americans quite like their Meisner technique and their Stanislavski and their Lee Strasberg. And you, you haven't got time for that in a Ray Cooney farce. Not if you're going to be funny. You know, the rhythm and the timing. And, and yeah, you know, and I, Ray, Ray did, a, a, did a side, a side, for, side pratfall when I kicked away his walking stick every night. Um, tremendous. So that was another great opportunity uh, you know, to work with him down there. Well, you've mentioned all these marvellous actors you ha have worked with, but you haven't mentioned possibly you know, one of the finest... Uh, and that is, of course, Basil Brush. Ah, now, yes, you see. Well, that almost brings it all full circle, doesn't it? That was one of my favourite auditions. And it, it, it was, I walked into the room, having attired myself, um, you know, appropriately, as you do now, you have to dress for the part. And I walked in, and there was Basil. So I started talking to Basil. And I asked, you know, what this lot were like. Are they okay to work for? You know, any, anybody I should look out for? And I'm having this lovely conversation with Basil, at which point the casting director and everybody else says, yeah, okay, Richard, we can start the audition now. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you mind if I speak to these people? That's good. Having lived my, my first sort of nine, ten months as a professional actor with puppets, I, I, I thought, no. And I also once shared a dressing room with Nobby the Sheep 
if you remember Nobby the Sheep from back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, I did a panto with Nobby. Um, we had some bloke with him, but I don't know. <laughs> some couple of Simons, I don't know what he was doing there. But um, yeah, that, that was tremendous. I was so thrilled. And, and the new version of, of Basil have made it him so mobile. He can, I mean, he could be, he could be hiding around the table that we're sat at now and popping up here and there and everywhere. And of course, uh, three or four camera setup, they just do so brilliantly uh, in, 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 again, keeping the character alive. There's an amazing thing in the episode I did with the Basil Brush where they do a full on close up hold of Basil thinking. This is, a, a, he's not a sock puppet, but, you know, an immobile face with it's immobile eyes. Yeah. But you know what? You know exactly what he's thinking. And that's, that's great credit to the performance. Great credit to the performance. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I don't think there'll be a chance to go back and do Basil Brush again, but I'd love to. It's brilliant. I love Basil Brush. I love Basil Brush. Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've taken up more of your time than I said I was, so we'll, um, let's, let's round it out. Um, any, anything we haven't covered that, uh, that we should have done? Any jobs that are partic- you're particularly fond of that we, we maybe didn't mention? Well, I, I did a, a, se- a, a season of rep theatre in, in New York with Damien Cruden. And the reason why I mention it is because when you're six foot seven, it's difficult sometimes to, to get a breadth of character. And he's one of the directors who would cast me as a character, sometimes a big tall chap, but quite often not. And that was one of the joys of how I started out in theatre, which was doing theatre for young people. It wasn't TIE, it was theatre for young people and family audiences, in which you might uh, play four or five different characters. Now, I did, I did the, the first stage tour of Eric the Viking um, for Peter Duncan, and in which I played numerous different characters, some skin, some not. Uh, I was at the uh, the Unicorn when it was at the Arts, and we did a whole season for two years in which I got to play many, many different characters. Um, and I think that's, that's something I was very grateful for at the time, because now having seen what I get in these years, uh, certainly the variety isn't quite as, as, as much as it once was. Um, and, and those are the things I sort of celebrate, if you like. You remember, yes, I can do that. It's the variety. People say, what's your best job? And I always say the next one. And I don't mean that just because I want to work again. The variety is what's kept me going, really. You know. Um, and and if, if you're willing to, to put your hand to a, a number of different sort of areas and genres, um, then that variety is what, what keep, keeps me alive. So what is next? Or what would you like to be next? Well, so right now I'm working for Seen and Heard, which is a children's writing project in Somerstown. Uh, so that's the next couple of weeks. What would I like? Um, I seem to have managed to avoid Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. uh, not quite sure how that happened, but I did do Vikings and Outlander and, and all that kind of stuff, which is good fun. Um, would love to do Peaky Blinders. I've got reasonably close to that a couple of times. But um, uh, the West Midlands has been a place which I, I spent a lot of time as a child and uh, rather loved doing a, a character from the West Midlands in the Monster Cafe, which was a children's uh, sort of suit job a long time ago. So Peaky Blinders would be good. But you know, it really is... I'm, I love the fact there's action and adventure back on our telly. Mm. And I love the fact that it's textured and it's dark and it's complex uh, and there is no sense of simple morality, which I think is quite important. Uh, and I'm, I really am you know, keen to see what the next season has going on for it. I just did Billy Elliot in the West End. I did the last uh, West End production or performance of Billy Elliot. 
which is something I'd been involved with peripherally right since it began, but didn't think I could do it, so I can't tap dance, and I never will be able to tap dance, and, and it's one of those things you can't fake. No. Um, but I did get to do Big Davey for a year, which was tremendous. Um, for all the reasons, you know, we lived through the miners' strike. Uh, we were still taking collections for that community in 2016. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, whatever's next is what excites me. Brilliant. Well, and what is your uh, charity of choice? Because you've kindly given your... Well, and interesting, I think we should thank... Because I love these funny coincidental things. One, we did this interview a stone's throw away from Who Futcher, who was in The Sea Devils. You mentioned I know! The sea Devils. I know! <laughs> uh, who is going to do a future Who's round, because I nobbled him. I, I did uh, throw The Sea Devil <laughs> over my left shoulder to see if anybody... Yeah. But also, when I got in touch with you, because a, a super Doctor Who fan, super in both senses of the word... Uh, Joe Halliday just dropped me a line and said, oh, you should get in touch with Richard Ashton. He seems like a nice guy. And you got in touch with me, and it turns out that I was, I was just about to start rehearsing A Midsummer Night's Dream for Feel Good Theatre Company, and That's the right. last time they did it, you were in it. I was With indeed. the same director. With the same director, <laughs> and, in, and in, in fact, the script you've got is, is one that Caroline and I uh, adapted together. How funny. Um, it is. What uh, a weird coincidence. It's, it's fantastic. I'm, I'm very jealous. I was supposed to not be here now, else I would have been able to be involved in that. Mm. Um, I should have been in, in Bucharest. Uh, doing a film uh, for Amy Crowell, uh, MPCA. Now, Amy is another great Hooverian. Somewhere I have a picture of her at a Who convention, dressed as Tom Baker, getting an autograph from Tom Baker, which is quite an achievement. He looks, he looks more than stunned. <laughs> so it has, it's been a great compliment, this has. I mean, Feel Good in Manchester uh, have been producing uh, really top quality drama all over the northwest of England for 20 odd years. I, I think we had the 20th anniversary at Manchester Airport. Um, me and Julie Hesman House went down because we're connected with the company. Um, other lovely people, Noreen Kershaw directs them and supports them. Uh, Chris Jacks has worked with them. You know, uh, it really is quite an august training. Going. As I said to Adrian Noble when I auditioned for um, uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang a few years ago, and he said to me, where, where, where is Heaton Park? And I said, Well, Heaton Park is the largest municipal park in Europe and home to one of the most successful theatre companies in England. We all, and I always got my photograph on the back page of The Guardian. Every show we did. You know, uh, we were very well supported because it is a genuine gem and it, it's a fantastic promenade um, production through uh, really a, a part that could be built to be a theatre set uh, with an audience who are not just loyal and, and dogged but also knowledgeable and vibrant. And I've lived in that part of Manchester for the last 10 years. I've recently moved back to London. But people would come up to me in the street and say, when is the next feel-good show? What? Well, they'd say, when are you going to be in the park again? Because that's their park. It's not our park, that's their park. They grew up in it as kids. Um, Mike Harding used to reference it in all his, his material as being proper countryside because it had railings around it. People, you know, got proposed there. I'm sure many people have been conceived there. You know, <laughs> he, the Pope went there, for goodness sake. Heaton Park is the place to go, and it's a great place to do, produce open-air shows. We, we've done uh, Miss Night's Dream. We did Blue Remembered Hills. We did uh, Dracula, the Blood Count. Fabulous with Peter Clifford, who, who wrote that. Um, Arthur King of the Britons, he also wrote that. Um, just a really, it's a proper theatrical event and Caroline has an amazing ability to create real theatre in some of the most astonishing places and in previous incarnations when she went further afield and was on a tidal island in the Mersey estuary, she was at Brimham Rocks, she was everywhere but, but um, Heaton Park is her home, has been for the last sort of ten years 
and I recommend anybody who hasn't been to the park since they were a kid to go uh, this summer and, and of course those people who are feel-gooders get your wellies on. Right, well, it's a shame we're not doing it together, but isn't uh, it? Maybe, isn't it? Maybe see you in the audience there. Oh yeah. Uh, well, Rich, thank you. What's your uh, What's your charity of choice for this? I ever? would like to nominate if if people uh, can find them out. I've just recently moved to West Ten, and I volunteer as a gardener and litter picker um, at the Meanwhile Gardens, which is itself a charity. It's a private park run for the public by a charity, Meanwhile Gardens. Uh, it's also used by MIND and one or two other uh, groups that work with uh, people with uh, mental health issues or vulnerable adults, uh, but is entirely funded by charity. And so if you, if you check out the Meanwhile website, I know that there's a huge uh, campaign shortly to, to be launched because it is actually the first skate park in the UK, and the skate park is now, um, which attracts people from all over the south of England, uh, have great events there. They actually had uh, a music event there in aid of people from Grenfell Tower last week, which was very successful. Um, but you know, we keep saying to people, this is brilliant, but it is actually totally run by volunteers and a charity. Uh, and right now, I think it's a resource in a part of London that could really do with some peace, some tranquility, and some, some communal action. Marvellous. Well, and the final question is, um, this is nominally con uh, convened to talk about Doctor Who, um, so what is your message to the Doctor Who fans listening out there? By the moons, I salute thee. Oh, Richard Ashton, what a treat this has been. Thank you so very much for your time. Thank you. Brilliant. That was great. Now, normally... These don't go out for about a year after they're recorded, but I thought, but I thought what I could, just because I've got a big waiting list, but I thought what, what I would do this one, because the series ends on Saturday, I'm going to do it, I'm going to edit it this weekend, and do it next week. That, again, breaking with protocol to uh, interview to release an interview with somebody I did most recently because he was in the latest series of Doctor Who. I've never done that before. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, he's a terrific fellow and uh, his charity is the Meanwhile Gardens which is meanwhile-gardens.org.uk so if you could donate to that that would be fantastic uh, and we talked about uh, Feel Good Theatre for whom I am playing bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream uh, at Heaton Park between the 19th of July and the 6th of August. So if you're in the north of England, uh, do come along because I know I do all these podcasts and stuff like that, but I'm actually quite a good actor and uh, I am playing bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream. So if you'd like to see my bottom, I'd love you to come and stare at it. Uh, there's going to be another one of these next time. Uh, thanks for listening to this one. Take care. ZM73. It looks just the same. The car? Well, good. I didn't know the previous owner. You. I mean, my... Someone bought it for me. Many happy returns. What's your name? What's yours? Kate. Kate Butterworth. How do I know I can trust you? How do you know you can trust anyone? I don't. What have you told her? None of your business. I don't quite understand. You were in a village, 
You didn't know where it was and you didn't want to be there. Don't worry. It'll all be over soon. What's your name? No names. Just, just numbers. Six. Six? Number six. Everybody wants to tell their story, don't they? <laughs> this is beginning to sound like an interrogation. Danvers, is this your idea of a joke? No, sir. Mark Stein just called. ZM73 is back and he wants to see you. Good God. If you had to escape from this village, was someone keeping you there by force? Yes. So, how did you get away? I told you, it was empty. You just woke up one morning and everyone had gone? Yes. Even the people trying to keep you there? Everyone had gone. Turn it off! Whatever this is supposed to achieve, turn it off! What is the village? Don't you know? Where is it? I don't know. All I know is that I escaped from it. How? I'll admit it. I'm fascinated to know your story. You want to turn my life into a book? Would that be such a bad thing? Everyone has a story. I don't tell stories. Why not? Everyone tells stories. Not me. I've got nothing to say. So you have a secret? It's all secret. There is no village. It's a Soviet fiction. Your cover story. He died in the service of his country. That's all they'd say. I can assure you that none of us has heard of this village place. Why should I believe you? Why should we believe you? Because you have some proof that I'm telling the truth. Not much proof. Precisely. We need more information from you, ZM73. Information. We want Did you tell them why you resigned? No. Why not? Because it was none of their damned business, and it's none of yours either. I met a man today, an extraordinary man. Well, certainly a man with an air of mystery about him. 